sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHTY, the home for the politically homeless and the podcast for those of you who like your politics and colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please tell one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows by word of mouth and word of mouth only. You can also get additional commentary on today's episode and other issues pertaining to the causes and effects of political polarization by signing up for YDHTY's weekly email at ydhty.com slash news. That's on the internet. Now, this is the final episode of the season before we take a short summer nap, and we are capping it off with our good friend, the Datamunk. Those of you who listened to the last episode we did together a few weeks back might remember how he pointed out most economic models discount the role energy plays in the economy, and it assumes an infinite supply. And after speaking with a few experts... I wanted to go over what I learned and get his comments because I feel like this is a big piece to the puzzle of why things are the way they are. You might also remember in the last episode how Ben Studebaker and I discussed the need for an international monetary reform similar to what was seen in Bretton Woods after World War II. And the data monk and I build on this concept and revisit our old cryptocurrency, the McGriddle coin. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. I I invited you here because you sent me down a total rabbit hole uh, about, what, like a month ago or so with our last conversation. I love it. It resonated so much that I got invited back within a month. Right? That's what you do. You just have to kind of like cold cock me with knowledge and then all of a sudden I'm ruined for weeks on end. And I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll, I'll lay the groundwork with what I've learned over the last three years of doing this podcast. And this is something that might be, if, if you're listening, might be a little repetitive, but I think it's important for the remainder of the conversation, which is I've come to believe that what we are seeing in the world today is our, our political systems and political actors acting logically under stress. And so, for example, the invasion of Ukraine by Putin, that is a logical decision if you take into context the constituencies that Putin that, that the constituencies that Putin has to appeal to and the threat a democratic Ukraine poses to that order. It makes perfect sense. And if you aren't familiar with why and you're listening, go back to uh, the invasion of Ukraine, it's Putin's life or death gamble on Ukraine's back in end of February, beginning of March, uh, if you want to give that a listen and get the groundwork. but Or if you look at the U.S. Now, the reason I started this podcast is because I felt like we had reached peak polarization back in 2018 and really wanted to get to the bottom of it. And if you understand the U.S. electoral system, you understand the incentives politicians have when they're seeking office, you understand the constituencies they appeal to. All the nonsense we see in our political system makes perfect sense. It makes sense. It's logical, right? And so for me, the big question isn't why is this happening? Because the polarization is baked right into the system. 
the conflict is baked right in. It's why now? Why has it reached such a fever pitch now? And the rabbit hole you sent me down, I think, has answered that question. Yeah, I gave you a, I, I, I handed you a one giant, you know, psychedelic mushroom uh, yes. called biophysical economics with a with an eat me uh, tag <laughs> attached. Uh, you consumed it. And now I'm really curious to see what you uh, what you realized. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think you're maybe one point I'd recommend. Um, I don't know if anyone's going to want to go buy this book because it's very expensive because these um, Springer series books have a tendency because they're academic. They are absurdly priced. But uh, there is a book called Failing States, Collapsing Systems by um, Nafiz Ahmed uh, that really lays out what you're kind of talking about here, not necessarily in the context of the U.S., but he ties sort of Syria, uh, what's going on in Nigeria, different places that uh, he walks through sort of biophysical triggers um, to how that impacted their economic and political systems. So mm-hmm. just kick mm-hmm. it off with a book recommendation in this uh, along that line. Mm. But psychedelic gr- mushroom. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. And that's great. Adam, I'm going to leave you a note here too. I'm eating yogurt as we're talking, which is probably not great podcasting, but. Feel free to edit the swallows. Just keeping it real. Yeah, that's it, it, man. man. That's it. Yeah, no, definitely. Like I have, I have definitely felt like the analogy or the analogy I've used is like I've just been like huffing ayahuasca for the or drinking it. I've never done it, but you know, I've been like on a serious trip and I'm through the looking glass. And I think in my interview with Carrie King, that that one really helped me understand exactly why we are where we are because what he talked about is how over the course of like 700 years of economic data what you see is that from the start of the industrial revolution until 2000 the percentage of income spent on food and energy goes down keeps going down and 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 you also see as we access new forms of energy, it gets cheaper, population grows, so on and so forth. Agricultural yields increase. And it really, a lot of that happens around the transition from coal to petroleum, which happens coincidentally right around World War II. Now, at, in 2000, the costs of both start to get more expensive as a percentage of income. And that's also the point where we see an economy that is fueled largely by by debt and largely by dependence on the US as the consumer of last resort, which is something we talked about in the last episode. So we have the situation now where maybe let's call it from the 1960s, 70s until 2000, US manufacturing capacity is moving to areas where it's cheaper to manufacture. Uh, the economy is getting global economy is becoming more integrated, more globalized. China reopens a lot of that industrial capacity moves over there. Uh, as that happens, these companies need and these countries really need to do one of two things, which is either export to a receptive market or build uh, demand, build demand internally. And they've all chosen to lead export-oriented strategies, all leading directly to the U.S. And the way we finance that in the U.S. is for the first part of the the century, it was through fake mortgages. You know, people felt rich. 
people bought houses they couldn't afford. They used their houses like ATMs. And then lo and behold, it all collapses. Right now, it should be noted, too, that you know, th what facilitated all that was the fact that there was such a huge demand for U.S. treasuries because the U.S. dollar is the global currency. It's if you're going to do trade internationally, the U.S. dollar is the cheapest, most effective vehicle to use. And in order for the global economy to grow with only one dominant currency, that the, the holder of that currency has to either take on debt or let its or let its the value of its currency appreciate. And in the case of the United States, we took on a lot of debt at very low interest rates. So it, was, it made, again, logically, it makes sense, right? Right. Get, and, and, and it's also just the other side of the ledger, right? So if you're servicing the U.S. demand, then you are getting paid in dollars. And so therefore, you have to recycle that back into treasuries mm -hmm. anyway. So yeah, it's the, the, the debt demand is sort of the offset of the, of the, you know, of tapping into the consumer demand. Yeah. Yeah. And so that continues. And now, again, at this point in time, the American consumer is kind of used to the market behaving like this. So since World War II, we've had a consumer-oriented economy. So there's kind of nothing out of the norm. There's nothing out of the ordinary for the U.S. consumer until 2008, when it all collapses. Uh, and at that point in time, that's at that point in time, the U.S. kind of has two choices, which is either to just inject tons and tons of liquidity into the market, inject more and more dollars into the market, or let it all collapse, kind of roll the dice and see what happens. U.S. chooses the former. Ben Bernanke is a big student of the Great Depression. He understands the power of, of government action during that time. And it, it keeps the global economy from disintegrating if that's what was going to happen. But it also starts another era of easy money in the form of venture capital, venture capital flowing into specifically life sciences, but and and high tech, and I think probably more so high tech, more so you know Web 3.0 or whatever point we're on now stuff, you know, and and so we go through this period of time again where a certain group of people benefit greatly. So if you're in an urban coastal enclave with uh, a focus on life sciences, finance, or technology, you're doing great, right? Your wages are going up, you're getting stock, go on, you're going to say something. Oh, yeah, no, I just, I think, you know, coming back to your point about like this sort of trying to drive consumption through the wealth effect, right, which Bernanke mm -hmm. said out loud, um, was this idea of like, that by increasing asset prices, you get increases in consumption. But obviously, there's a decreasing marginal return to that. And so you, you kind of, as they've tried to boost, you know, first through housing prices and then through stock prices, like you can, you get sort of, you know, some impact, but what the, but the offsetting result is that you end up with wealth accumulation in a very small percentage of people. And so like, that's that we've, exactly what we've seen happen. Just a second. Sorry. Um, yeah, well, that's that's exact. That, so that's exactly it. And now, it, again, if you look at these local economies, overall, the wealth is kind of spread equally. Like if you're, you know, so for example, if you're a, a roofer or a carpenter or, you know, any number of different jobs in these economies, 
you're still doing well. Demand's high. You can maintain a fairly high price for your labor as a result of, um, as a result of you know just this economy growing. But if you were in other parts of the country where the focus of your job is on actual output, and I, I you know, that's probably dismissive to say, but if your job involves producing a good that I can touch or I can eat, right, and that's what your economy is based on, things haven't been so great for you. You know, manufacturing, very non-competitive due to the fact that, uh, again, we there's the way the global economy is structured, uh, very difficult to export in a dollar-denominated world when your economy is denominated in dollars, you know, as that's weird right. as that sounds. Right. Um, agriculture, same thing. They benefit from a lot of subsidies, so I don't think they got hit as hard. But so, you know, getting back to the state of the U.S. and, and how we ended up here, it's very clear to me why there, why the country has broken down in the way it has. It's very clear to me why there's the level of resentment there is. And a lot of people, and I've heard political scientists say this too, they'll, they'll cite racial grievance as the key driver. I don't, I think it's, I, I think it's in reverse. I think what happens is when people are under stress, when people find it hard to make ends meet, they start to go to their favorite other right and a lot of people's favorite other is the person on the other in the other political party that's kind of how it works in this country but i think racial identity religious identity those are some fault lines that exist and again when certainly and i mean a, a, another meal I'll, I'll make another book recommendation here though this one's less directly related to it but in the early 90s is a um a sociologist named william julius wilson who wrote a book called when work disappears where he studied the south side of Chicago and what the history of the city and how, you know, some of the factories and things that had moved out of that area and moved out to the sort of suburbs and further away and what happened then to tracing sort of what happened to the city when you no longer had sort of the, the working base to support some of the services um, there. And so you had degrading of some of the, of the, some of the public services, which then sort of, you know, led to, you know, not only creating sort of a um, sort of some multi-generational impoverishment that was going on in some of these areas, but also fed to some of these racial biases and things that, that were only enhanced um, mm -hmm. by that. And, and interestingly, and the reason I, I recommend it is that I think, you know, he makes a few casual observations and forecasts and um, about what might happen to, suburban areas when um if if that work was to leave those areas and he's spot on with a lot of his forecasts not having you know i don't think at the time he knew that that was that we would hollow all that out to send it to china and to mexico and to other areas but as as those jobs sort of disappeared you know we've seen kind of the result of this which is you're getting you know um rising drug use right in, in a lot of these um in some of these rural impoverished areas you're getting sort of increases in uh you know maybe in, in some cases um you know for lack of a better way to describe it like scapegoating right so looking at these the sort of blaming another like for others for this right um, and so, yeah, I mean, as, and that follows from, you know, I guess if I picked a, a one point to sort of trace that back to is probably China entering the world trade organization when we began to really export, 
um, these jobs in, in large amounts uh, following that. Yeah, and there's there's kind of two points I want to make or two things I want to I want to get to here. The first, and this is a bit of a tangent, but uh, when back in September, I interviewed a guy named Nathaniel Baum Snow. So around November, September, October, if you want to give this episode a listen, and he is an expert in infrastructure and the effects on the economy in China and the United States. So I, and at the time I was looking at infrastructure and trying to figure out what the what was in that, like what's the real issue here. And the interesting thing that he told me is that when the U.S. created the interstate highway system, they actually engaged in sort of a micro level of rebalancing of the economy. So before people, before World War II, and up until World War II, people lived in very densely populated cities. And then if you lived out in the country, you were probably a farmer or something, right? And a lot of land was just inaccessible. Well, the instant the interstate highway system was created, all of a sudden, all these tracts of land became really easy to get to with the advent of the car as well, or with the, you know, with the fact that people could afford cars. All this stuff became really easy to get to. And so what happened is before you had all sorts of jobs in the city, you had jobs for lower income workers, middle income workers, upper income workers, everybody lived together. Well, when the interstate highway system comes out, now all these jobs that cater to lower income workers, manufacturing, warehousing, things like that, all moved out and they moved out. My dog is so fucking stupid. He barks at everything. So you're just going to have to listen to this as I, as I continue. But so at, so all these lower income jobs move further out of the city where property is cheaper. A lot of people move out of the city because they want a bigger house and a yard and, you know, all the things that you can't get in in a dense urban region. And you have this city now where there's a lot of lower income workers maybe who can't afford to move out or because of racist housing policies can't move out. They're stuck right. in there. Yeah. And that's Wilson really touches on that. I mean, yeah. To tie it back to your point about the... Um the highway system. I mean, even just you, by creating the underpasses and overpasses, right? You build, built literally concrete barriers that separate parts of the city um, by running sort of highways through things and, and yeah. having these. Sort of, yeah. it, it, by the way, by the way, this dog who is barking <laughs> and disturbing me, right? The only reason that dog ownership is normal is because of this dumb highway system that married Americans to an unsustainable lifestyle of highways and large yards and big houses, which we're going to talk about how all that's unwinding, never should have happened. It's been, and this is kind of where, you know, even if we look at the miracle of the 1950s, in my estimation, like we had a, a like a 10 year sugar high. Cause like, is the economy not going to grow when you're building a bunch of houses and buying a bunch of appliances to fill that house, buying a bunch of furniture to fill that house? Like, of and, course, and it's exporting grow. and exporting to, you know, yeah. elsewhere, right? Because we've Absolutely. talked about in the past, like that you had, you know, post-World War II, you had a large portion of the capital stock in say Europe, right? That was yep. destroyed. And so had to yeah. be recapitalized. And so yeah. as that was happening, we were a we were an energy exporter and a material exporter. And so yeah. we had a, a, you know, there's an enormous sort of tailwind uh, economically from that as well on top of the demographic boom or the baby boomers and, um, and, the, and the development of the sort of suburban, um, you know, infrastructure that we see today. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And, and, and so I, I think, and, and maybe just to, to elaborate on that too, 
right at the turn of World War or the end of World War II, we had transition to petroleum as our primary source of energy. It was an abundant supply in the U.S. It was an abundant supply everywhere. And we really created a lifestyle and, uh, and, 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 an, and an infrastructure pattern or a pattern of building that reflected abundant energy, reflected the fact the U.S. was 50% of GDP, reflected the fact the U.S. owned two-thirds of the world's gold, and reflected the fact that we had a very young population either in or just entering working age. So there were tremendous headwinds. And we built this lifestyle that now where we're older as a population, there's less energy. Lord knows how much gold we have. I mean, who cares, right? Uh, and, 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 but we're, and now we're married to this existence. And really, like, as I was in the last episode, as we were talking, one of the things that my guest said, Ben Studebaker, who I've had on a number of times, um, he's competing with you for a number of times on this, on this podcast. He, you know, what he, he views the, the point, really the, the, the pivot point as, uh, in, in the 1970s when Nixon took us off the gold standard. And he views that as the point where, you know, Nixon had a choice and his choice was to either cut spending, increase taxes, or let the dollar float. And he chose the politi politically expedient option. And again, getting back to systems acting logically, any president who wants to win re-election is going to take the easiest choice. The easiest choice was to let the dollar float. And if you look at 2000 until now, the easiest choice has been to enable high levels of government spending with low taxes funded by deficits. So we are in a weird situation where democracy is working to undermine democracy because of the polarization that we're seeing and a lot of the anti-democratic views we're seeing that are popping up are the direct result of a system not providing for the voters who are voting for lots well, of spending and, and, right I and that's spit on my and, computer and, screen and i think that's because well and i think if you, if you tried to find a you know maybe a possible root cause right i think yeah. it's you know in my mind it's it's been uh, the, the complete lack of understanding of these these things right so nobody yeah. really understands this I, I would say most like you know most economists don't really think this way most politicians certainly don't think this way and they're and most of them when they're asking for advice on anything economic or talking to traditional economists who don't think this way so we everyone's sort of you know hoping this will turn out and they make the politi politically expedient decision making you know with the best advisors around but they're not even really necessarily working from the right model Right. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, if you need a good example of, of this sort of, you know, I think cognitive dissonance of watching this unfold is sort of, you know, the concerns about climate change and getting to net zero and doing all this stuff that we're supposed to be, you know, the, to curbing fossil fuel consumption. Right. And so insofar as people have asked for like a carbon tax, I mean, we should add like a tax that would I mean, you know, when we know functionally what that means is that the price of gas and price of oil would go up, right? You know, it would be tax dollars, but you'd be pushing that price higher because you'd be, and so we haven't done that, but now we have higher oil prices. We have $5 gasoline prices, right? Mm -hmm. And what are we doing? We're getting the, you know, the same, you know, politicians like 
who were calling for you know, carbon taxes and fighting climate change are saying it's, you know, refiners patriotic duty to, to sort of make more gasoline and they want to send out coupons to everybody to buy to for gas. I mean, like this is this. You should be actually happy with this. That this is what happened. Right. It will curb consumption in theory. But that's not but that but the mass understanding of this is not that this is a good thing. The understanding is yeah. that this is hurts them personally. And so, which understandably, um, and so we end up with a result where the politicians just vacillate on something that they're saying that they would like to do, but then they they will quickly turn on that when it's because of it's it's not politically politically palatable. Yeah, it's all fun and games until somebody loses an eye. That's as right. They say. Or, or office five dollars. Yeah. Right. Right. And then I'll. Oh Jesus. Yeah. So I I and now this this gets us to. And I hope, listener, I hope you've, you're with us so far. I think we've covered a lot of ground, but I feel like we've cut it up into small pieces. So I'm hoping it's all working. Um, so the, the next thing then is if we get back to the root cause of it all, which is the dollar as the the currency of international commerce, that goes back again to World War II. It goes back to the Bretton Woods Agreement where 44 countries agreed to peg their currencies the dollar, which was then pegged to the value of gold until Nixon changed all that and let it float. So what led up to that and what led to the call for that universal currency were a series of competitive currency devaluations during the Great Depression or that ultimately exacerbated the effect of the Great Depression and ultimately led the world into the Second World War. And if we look at the period between World War I and World War II, what we were witnessing was a breakdown of a colonial system of uh, of international commerce where uh, where it was really territory equaled economic power right and that system started to break down as we got into again into the the 20th century empires are very expensive to run you know it's very expensive to to govern the world. And there's this uh, journalist from the 1930s who wrote this book called America Conquers the World. And I, I can't I can't remember the quote exactly in, from the book, but it's to the effect of America is too wise to govern the world. We shall simply own it. And he sort of predicted that America's economic dominance would come to lead it to, to rule the world economically and in, in a manner of speaking, it did. Um, and so, but, but again, getting back to the whole problem with, or the whole issue of Bretton Woods, you know, Bretton Woods was really established to, to, to really address the issues of economic and, and monetary instability that led to the first and second world wars or, or more so the second world war. And now we're entering the, the 2020s and we're seeing a system that is starting to break down for much the same reason. The only difference is that we have a dominant currency. And so one of the ideas proposed in the last episode, and something that I think is particularly fond to you and me, is the idea of a Bretton Woods 2.0, the idea of revisiting the idea of a universal currency, but taking out the limitations, and uh, or, or I should say taking out the weak spots. And if you look at what made the US so attractive, and why the U.S. continues to be such a dominant currency 
It's because it's liquid. There's a lot of dollars around. It's fairly stable. Uh, and it's widely accepted. And it also has the backing of a very large consumer economy. So for people who doubt the dollar, like the reason the dollar's in existence is because there's 330 million relatively affluent, if we're talking globally, people who can who need to buy a lot of stuff, even if they're like cutting budgets. They, they, they buy a lot of stuff. So right. the dollar makes a lot of sense. The downside of it is that we have a universal currency or global currency that is governed by people whose incentives lie exclusively in the United States. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you one doomsday scenario that's popped up in my head, which is debt ceiling brinksmanship eventually reaches the point where the U.S. just defaults on its debt. And then that creates a crisis of confidence in the dollar. And you have a lot of countries trying to figure out how they're going to rectify international payments uh, with this currency that now is in flux. And and so I guess like what I when I look at kind of what would Bretton Woods 2.0 look like and what would it be, what would be the ideal state? I, I, I think there's, I mean, liquid, stable, and widely accepted is the big question mark. But I mean, I personally think the idea of a, a democratically elected government or an autocracy for that matter, being disciplined enough to handle the position and the privilege of, of, a, of a universal currency is impossible. I think it's too, it's too politically attractive to pass up manipulating it. Yeah, so, I think that's right. But that's, but that's partly... I mean, that's the reason why the Federal Reserve has theoretically been, you know, separated from political control, right? On the, yeah. at, least, at least, you know, explicit political control. Obviously, the, the Fed chair is an appointed position. Um, but the, but it's not, you know, specifically a political organization. I, I say that, I know that's a naive statement to say, and I, I understand like there are certainly, um, plenty of politics that play into that, but, um, but that, that's why that's sort of a separate entity, right? And it's not a political, in theory, it's not a, a political entity. Um, I, I think my question has been sort of, is it, is it so much that, you know, the federal reserve and democracy, like that the U S democracy is incapable of managing a dollar standard, or is it more that it is a, it is a centrally planned currency in the sense that we set the, you know, the capital markets rates for the fed funds rate are set by a group of, um, economists, right. Um, at the Federal Reserve, and they generally don't think this way. They use very linear models, economic, you know, economic and econometric models that are not sort of a interrelated complex system model that 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 sort of you know Carrie King or others are talking about. And so mm -hmm. this interplay of sort of managing the uh, the amount of currency right the size of the federal reserve balance sheet with 
a model that maybe is incomplete in how it describes the system functioning creates a significant levels of distortion potentially. Yeah. And this, I want to, I want to bring the listener up to speed on this idea because this is something we talked about in our last conversation, which is most economists really think of the healthy economy, quote unquote, as growing 3% per year, effectively. Let's just say that. Maybe the, the figure's different. But it's about right. Yeah. But an economy can't grow 3% per year because there's only so much earth. Like it's, it's, it, there's, there's only so much we can consume. And so that linear model really doesn't take into account the fact that eventually we just run out of stuff to buy or run out of ways to make things out of the matter that exists on earth. Am I yeah, understanding I mean, that I correctly? Think, you think? I think that's, okay. yeah, I think that's a, I mean, yeah, I, I think obviously that's a pretty sort of reductionist version of it, but, the, but I think that's good. We need, we have to think in terms of simplified ways of thinking about this. I think right now there are sort of some complexities to it, but I would say let's, let's stick with a sort of a simplified mm -hmm. model, which is that, yeah, I mean, I think the, Overall, we're talking about sort of infinite growth in a finite system. And that, that at some point begins to distort things. And, and I think you, you know, that model that's built entirely on sort of thinking into, around labor and capital and not necessarily around, you know, and, and assume sort of infinite substitutability of all the different things that make the economy grow is, you know, an incorrect model. It really overlooks sort of some of the the support services that like the nat that natural systems provide, right? Um, and it overlooks sort of the fact that you know there might be limits to some you know inputs like energy, which are non-substitutable, but yet are inside a traditional economic model are substitutable. That's you know, that we touched on that back at, when I sent you down this road in the first place. Yes. And, I mean, and, and, and kind of what your, your point about is, is I think fundamentally what's missing here is that if I ask any economist um, or any financial market participant or even some politicians who are financially savvy, what is money? You know, they all give the textbook answer, right? It's a store of value. It's a medium of transaction. It's a relative measure for understanding value. Like, yeah, those are all true. And as we said, like back a month or so ago, like, but more than any of those things, it has value because it has a, it's a call on work. It's an IOU on with work, right? That I can hand it to somebody. And in return, I get a product or service back. Yeah. And when that, and that product or service, by definition, takes energy because all work takes energy. And so there's an energetic component to energy, which is completely misunderstood. Um, to Sorry, the energetic component to money that is completely misunderstood. And yeah. that in our traditional economic model does not consider in any way. So what does a, what does a better economic model look like? I mean, I, I mean, obviously I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist and yeah. I'm not even probably remotely as, uh, as well-versed in any of this as someone like Harry King or some of the other folks you've had on. But I, I think you could say that a, a starting place is to understand that, you know, like energy's role in economic growth is central, right? It's not like 
in an econ a traditional economist, again, it's probably a simplified way to think about it, but a traditional economist would really just say like, oh, well, you look at, you know, energy is just 3% of the economy. And you're like, well, no, that's of course not right. Like that's just the 3% that we're counting toward like extracting that energy and, and delivering it to the rest of the economy. But taking that energy and converting it into stuff is 100% of the economy, right? Like, yes. So if that was gone, yeah. like your economy would collapse by literally only your ability to, to, to forage and find stuff for yourself, right? Like everything, every single other thing is provided by additional energy outside of you. And you can do this math on just like working through the number, like, you know, how many calories a person needs to survive, how many they can output, you know, reasonably within a working hours like a day. You can do all that math and come up with sort of the maximum caloric output that a person would be able to, to have. And then look, compare it to our total energy consumption. And what it comes back to is that every one of us, you know, on average, and this is more so in the developed world than in, in maybe less developed areas of the world, but on average, everybody's got like 80 personal assistants running around mm -hmm. making stuff happen that are just like energy robots that like make all the stuff and support all the things around your lifestyle. And if those were gone, like you, you can't, I mean, just even just think through the complexity and this is a traditional, so I'll, I'll put this filter it through a traditional economists love this example of, and they use it to think about specification and like, and the, you know, moving toward away from generalists toward specialists. Right. So they think of a term like specialization is like, oh, what a miracle of modern economics is the sandwich. Like, think about that. Because if you try to make a sandwich from scratch, right, it's incredibly hard to do, right? Yeah. It's, you'd have to like, literally, I mean, like grow the grain, mill it, make, like bake the bread, and then also go out and get like, you know, raise... <laughs> raise the cow to make your roast beef and then also grow the tomato and the lettuce to make your sandwich and yeah. raise the chickens to like raise the eggs to make your mayonnaise. Like think about all the things that would go into making a sandwich and that you can just like throw it together. Right. And that's, that is a miracle of specialization. Like all those different people doing jobs. So somebody is raising, raising the cow, somebody's processing a cow, somebody's slicing the roast beef at the deli. Like, all that stuff is specialization. But again, we're missing like what drives the ability to do this at all this scale is the amount of energy available to just push all of this and make all of this happen relatively easily. Yeah. Well, the best part, and for those, for if you're interested too, if you're listening and you're interested in diving a little deeper, you can listen to the episode I recorded with Kerry King, or you can get his book, The Economic Superorganism which really talks about all this and lays out some very interesting data points on it. But one of the things he said is, if you want to get a feel for what the world looks like on 100% renewable energy, you go back to the 1700s. Like it was all renewable energy at that point. It was sun and wind. That's pretty much what power, that's pretty much- Yeah, what, and, and, gathering, and, and gathering firewood, right? Like yeah, exactly. Go, yeah, that's, yeah. that's pretty much what powered it. And, and so- I, so yeah, and, and I think to 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 maybe distill what you're saying too, it's effectively like the economic model assumes that the the driver of all that energy is going to exist in perpetuity, 
and doesn't really take into account the fact that where we're deriving all of our energy from right now are are or or, or the source of all of the energy that's fueling this is finite and will be exhausted will be exhausted and there's no substitute like one of the things from Carrie King's book that was really interesting is he showed how there's never been a case where energy has been substituted. And you know, Vaslav Smil has touched on this in Energy Transition, which is another book you can can read. I mean, this has been and or just just look up literally just Google if any yeah. of the listeners just go on and say like you know fuel like energy by fuel type by year or something. I mean, and some variation on that. And you're going to see over time a, like a graph of our total energy use. You can find this mm-hmm. image in less than 30 seconds. You're going to see our total energy use globally broken down by type. And you're going to see that mm-hmm. almost in every single instance, right, we use more today than we did 100 years ago. We don't. We never stopped using anything. We burn more firewood now than we did 100 years ago. Like we haven't stopped yep. using anything. We didn't transition away from some of these things. We we burn more of oh, every single one of them than we did before. It's all additive. We just continue to use more. If we find a new source of energy, we use it, right? Yeah. It's like I mean, I, I you know I think I might have used this example before, but like if a room fills with gasoline and I light a match, like a portion of is and isn't saved for later. Like it all ignites. Yeah. So like, yeah. we, we, like, it's just, that's the, we, when we find any energy, we use it. Like, so, yeah. so I think that's, um, I think that's partly what he, what he's kind of getting at. It's like, we, we just, we continue to compound that the, the, you know, available energy, we don't necessarily stop using one in favor of another. This is a, yeah. we, we may do that, but it's a, it's an unprecedented experiment. And, and to, to kind of get to tie this into how debt fuels this as well. So there's a great article that came down on me like manna from heaven that I sent you about 20 minutes before we jumped on this, which I'll, I'll, I'll include for the, the listener in the show notes. But the, the title of it is Farewell Millennial Lifestyle Subsidy. It's from the New York Times last year. And what it talks about is how Companies like Uber and Airbnb, Postmates, all these companies that uh, again favor or or cater to this, you know, uh, the the. And I don't want to be like all coastal elite MAGA on folks because if you've listened, you know that's not who I am. But they've catered to this like millennial urban generation or, or or group of people, group of consumers. And the interesting thing it talked about is how. Because of easy money policies, venture capitalists were willing to dump just oodles and oodles of money on startups with the goal of growth. And what these startups have done is these startups have spent a decade running unprofitable businesses for the sake of gaining market share. So their idea was like, we're just going to get a bunch of customers and then eventually figure it out. Well, it's 2021, 2022. Now they've got to figure it out and they have to become profitable. And all of a sudden now, Uber isn't so cheap. Airbnb isn't cheaper than a hotel. Like there are lots of instances now where a lot of these companies that have created a lot of wealth in monetary terms are all of a sudden not necessarily the sweetheart deals they once were when you can't run a loss in eternity and continue to see your stock price rise. And even we see this now with the Airbnb taken out of the balloon by the Fed on on stock prices. A lot of this wealth 
that has driven housing prices up in these regions and made the cost of living very, very difficult for a lot of people. You know, a lot of that's starting to disappear now. And we're starting to get back to the basics of of the economy. And 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 the sore and, and again, all that debt really didn't fund anything but unsustainable consumption. And and now the bills come and do, it seems. And to to bring to to kind of loop this into where we started the conversation too. And this is something we discussed in the last episode, or I discussed in the last episode with Ben Studebaker. But as America consumes less, export-oriented economies suffer. And China's political stability depends on constant economic growth. China's political structure is based on people whose wealth is generated in this export-oriented economy. And so China has... A couple of choices. There's transform its economy to one where there's more internal demand. Which is, or, by the way, was the goal several years ago, epically failed, right? They 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 talked they were talking about this for the last decade that this was going to be a transition to the consumer taking over from infrastructure spending. And they've yeah. it hasn't really budged at all. So we're gonna see this wind this winding down is happening either way. And the, the question is like, do does not does this autocracy do what autocracies do which is increase coercion on the population which it you know already is does it invade other countries you know does it start a war this is another way autocracies stay in power and 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 all this is up for debate but i i think that like what i what i wonder is regardless of what happens the aftermath is go- we're going to need to address the money issue. You know, we're going to need to address the issue of how do we have a stable, because I don't think we can go back to this model where everybody trades in their own currencies. It's just not the way economies work. And so what I wonder is, is there, what does that ideal framework look like? And you know, one of the things you and I have talked about a lot, we, we talked about cryptocurrencies in our earlier episodes. I think both you and I are are big time and have been big time like Bitcoin skeptics. And that goes back to last year. So you can listen and and you can hear not to necessarily say that like I'm anti-Bitcoin, but I was definitely skeptical of its potential. And now it's imploding, which is justifying my opinion temporarily. Um, but but I but I think more so like what I've learned about currencies is is that the it, it is that Bitcoin lacks a lot of things that universal currencies have. Like one of the big fallacies or one of the false premises of Bitcoin was that scarcity drove value, and scarcity actually encourages hoarding. So, and we see this with Bitcoin, where there are these whales, these people who just have you know hundreds of thousands of Bitcoins and just dump them at certain prices, and you can't have a sustainable universal currency with that happening. Like it had, like you cannot have a currency that's hoarded and also have it be liquid and also have it be stable. Right. And so in my mind, if I'm to invent, if somebody comes to me and goes, Dan, you get to invent the universal currency that everybody trades by. Right. My idea is a decentralized currency similar to Bitcoin that by default depreciates at 3% per year. So by default, there is 3% inflation baked into it. So that gives you enough time to have it hold its value, but you're also going to 
spend it. You don't have any incentive to hold on to that thing. So, so meaning, I mean, to make sure I'm clear on it, the depreciates in the sense that the supply grows by correct. Supply yeah. is constantly. So growing. I think you're kind of in the. I think you're kind of in my space. I think so. Here, here let me, let me, let me, let me maybe describe it slightly differently. Um, I have a, I have a theory about this. Um, I don't believe I've, I don't, I think this is novel to me. Um, yeah. I don't think uh, I've ever seen this. So take it with a grain of salt because it is just sort of my opinion. Um, but as we've talked about the, the federal reserve manages the U S currency effectively using a naive model that tomorrow will look like yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. That, that there's a, tr- there's a, you know, trend growth that will increase over time because that's what it's done historically. And this comes back to sort of this idea of that if we believe the driver is quote, like productivity, which is driven by like human ingenuity, then our best guess at what that would look like is to just sort of say, what's it been in the past? So therefore it'll probably be there in the future. So it creates this idea of an output gap every time we have, um, you know, a recession or a pull or a slowdown in the economy that it should be at some level. And so that drives a lot of the monetary policy. Again, this is probably a simplified view, but I don't think inaccurate. And so what, what I think bothers me about that is it doesn't have, and all of economics really lacks, like a really solid kind of ex ante or like before the uncertainty, right? Like view of what actually drives productivity, right? Like what actually makes this happen. And I think there's a case to be made because I'm clearly, I'm making it, um, that (laughs) that is about like net energy availability and like the efficiency with which that gets converted to doing work. And those terms really drive productivity, right? And so to our point, like, we can say, you know, we can use phrases like when energy runs out, but that's not really what happens, right? It's just that then it becomes harder and harder to get the energy and therefore the net energy available is is starting to decline. That's what we're really saying, right? It's not like yeah. you run out of it. It's like, as, as I talked about with a front, um, uh, colleague of mine once, just said like, you know, the last barrel of oil will take the second to last boil, barrel of oil to get, you know what I mean? Yes. Like that's like, right? Yeah. Like, so that that's kind of the so that sort of net energy availability is sort of the point like is is and so if theoretically right and this is i think where you know this takes a little bit of the sort of you know doomsday sort of forecast out of some of this once you framed it that way you could say well if we were to find like you know much more like higher energy density higher availability net energy amounts then there is like potentially a lot more growth right you could do a lot of things if you have like very low cost um cheap net energy if somebody invents the the mr fusion machine from you know the from uh back to the future to really date yeah. myself um the uh you know then yeah i mean the the ability to sort of manipulate matter and 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 grow to New about put resorts on the moon for crying out loud. I mean, you could do all kinds of stuff, but if but short of that, like we can't, like we don't, like that. That's we don't have that available. And so, if that's in, until such time as somebody creates something like that, you are kind of bounded. And like, and I think 
that's where it becomes a question of like, if your productivity can only grow at so quickly, and maybe that answer is 3%, but I'm not sure that it is or it isn't. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but ultimately what it's saying is that the money supply growth has to sort of match your productivity growth. Because if you get more than that growth, and, and Thomas Piketty pointed this yeah. out. I mean, I'm going to probably abuse his work and he might take issue with me, but uh, he wrote a book, a very famous book called in, uh, Inequality. Um uh, back, you know, focused on inequality back a few years ago. Um, everybody had an opinion on it. Very few people actually read it. It was like 800 pages long. <laughs> and, yes. and yet way more people had an opinion on the book than ever probably actually sat, read, <laughs> read 800 pages yeah. of this book. Um, but uh, there's a lot, but let me sum it up. What he really came down to is that if the rate of return on capital mm-hmm. grows faster than the real rate of the economy, Right. It uh, then you get wealth inequality. And that's kind of functionally what we've had happen. Right. That Mm -hmm. the rate of return on capital by forcing like every time the market corrects, we print money to to sort of to bolster it, that we're constantly sort of pushing this against um, then we've was, has resulted in sort of on, you know, very high levels of wealth inequality, which is exactly what it took him 800 pages to show with really incredible research and a lot of really, really cool graphs that go back, you know, again, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But Mm -hmm. that's really, um, but that was sort of the point of the work. And so what we're really saying is that I think what what you're really helping saying is you need the currency needs to grow at the real rate of the economy. So we're not getting this kind of like, you know, um, either big liquidity bubbles that push, that push asset price speculation or the reverse which is what happens when you have hoarding, which is that you would have like a decline in capital available for good ideas. So you would also yeah. be hurting the, the growth rate of the economy because somebody could have a, if everyone's hoarding, you know, McGriddle coins, like then somebody could have an amazing idea to make the Mr. Fusion machine, but getting the capital to them might be very, very hard to do in that world. Or, or conversely, uh, maybe somebody has the idea for the Mr. Fusion machine, but capital is so easy to get that people can make returns on some non-profitable shit-in-a-box service that 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 seems to prolifer that seems to be that that seemed to proliferate across the economy over the last like five years. Right. And and so and so I think the 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 root of this and there's and we don't have enough time to get into this, unfortunately, but. It, there's there's other things that our economic system does, like for instance the you know the, the the availability of dollars and the deregulation of the commodities market has actually made food unaffordable in other parts of the world and led to political instability because dollars just flow into these markets when there's a good rate of return. And so, you know, I think the the takeaway f- for all this from all this for the listener is getting back to the core issues of this podcast, electoral reform, absolutely 100% necessary. We are witnessing US democracy under stress. And one of the weak points we see is our electoral system. So that's just, we just need to make a system that's more resilient regardless, right? But if we really drill down to the root cause, the why the system is under stress and the why this is so important, it's because we have a group of, we have have a, a universal currency governed by economists who have an incomplete model of the economy and overseen by politicians who have an incentive to continue the status quo until it breaks and 
and and we're seeing the weaknesses in that as well and so there's no we can we can certainly remove we can make our system more resilient to that stress but it's like you know bolstering a dam as the water's rising like eventually that water's going to go over there and so until we address the monetary imbalances that create this problem we're still going to have it and so i have an idea and i promised you an hour so i gotta let you go but dear listener i have an idea i'm gonna put a link to it in the show notes there's there's a little more there i'd love your thoughts so again if you're listening and and mike as well you can comment too i'd love your comments uh because i do feel like if i i do feel like we don't get anywhere as a as a world until we reform the way capital is is distributed that's that's probably a good place to to sum it up I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving it a review. We need more people like you in the conversation. Now, I hope this episode and the one we did last week helped sew together a bunch of disparate parts we've been examining, probably since the podcast started, to be real. Because when I first started this, I was under the impression that the polarization we were experiencing was solely because of the way we elect people to office. And now I realize that's far too simplistic. The plurality system of elections we have here in the United States offers an easy way to channel the unhappiness of voters into wedge and identity issues that divide the electorate, but it doesn't create the unhappiness in and of itself. The discontent we see that's led to the rise of the Tea Party, Occupy Wall Street, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders comes from a system that has failed to meet people's basic needs for the past 20 years. And in my mind, We need electoral reform simply so we can acknowledge the problems we're experiencing aren't the fault of those who don't think like us. But the bigger problem is going to be addressing the economic imbalances that are built into a globalized economy fed by never-ending demand for one sovereign currency. This cycle will end, and all historical precedent says it's going to end badly, but there's hope if we take action. And... My hope is that I'll have a proposal for a new global currency that could fix the problem available to share by the time this episode is published and in the show notes. But if not, I'm going to have a link you can fill out to be alerted via email when it's ready. Sorry for the clickbait, buddies. It's the best I could do. Now, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, we're going to be taking a short break and republishing some of our favorite episodes from the back catalog in July, after which... We're going to kick off the year with a killer series I recorded earlier. I've been dying to get out, but got sidetracked when war broke out in Ukraine. I hope you enjoy the summer. And as always, music courtesy of Quellertack, YDHTY's editorial advisor, producer, and director of continuous improvement is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios. Adios.